In many ways, hypocrisy is considered the cardinal sin of today. If you've been following along with, with what Jeff was praying through earlier in terms of this court decision, uh, returning really the, the abortion laws to the states, but in many states that will effectively outlaw them. If you've followed that conversation at all, much of the, the vitriol directed towards uh, those who would identify as pro-life what are the attacks that you've seen? You've likely seen you are a hypocrite. You don't care about the life of the mother or the life of the poor or the life of anyone else. Well, besides the fact that that's just not true, that the church does not care, the assumption seems to be that if, if it can be demonstrated that you're a hypocrite, then it undermines your whole argument. It strengthens their position somehow. It's one of the worst charges that can be leveled at a person today. You are a hypocrite. One professor recently said that he, he begins each semester by asking his students, you know, what are two things that you love and what are two things that you hate? And he said, often at the top of the list of what they hate is fake people. I hate fake people. When Bill Cosby was arrested for drugging and abusing multiple women, many of the news articles focused as much on his hypocrisy as they did the acts themselves. You know, in some ways, the world is right to decry hypocrisy. The demand for authenticity is preferable to hypocrisy. But the question before us this morning is, as those who are seeking to be molded and shaped by God's Word, is what is authentic living? What is it? If we're going to take the Bible as God's revealed Word to us, then we can't just chalk up authentic living to you do you, or you be you, or follow your heart. Instead, authentic living is directed towards God, not my own personal feelings, not my own personal preferences. It is to aim at something greater than my own fulfillment. It is to aim at pleasing and glorifying God, both in my public life and in my private life. That's the biblical alternative to hypocrisy. You know, as Jeff read the text this morning, you may have picked up on a couple themes that sort of tie these three paragraphs together. And I think those two three themes that sort of run as threads through these texts are, one, hypocrisy, and two, the fear of God. And so in putting these themes together, we might make our main statement, and we might summarize the passage this way. We avoid hypocrisy and live authentic Christian lives when we fear God and not man. We avoid hypocrisy and live authentic Christian lives when we fear God and not man. So we see the first point in those first three verses, if you're a note taker, point number one this morning is avoid hypocrisy by living in light of the judgments. If you've been with us, we've been walking through the book of Luke, and we just finished chapter 11. If you're just popping in for a Sunday, maybe on vacation, I'll try to catch you up as best I can to, to the context. Chapter 11 ended with the Pharisees and the scribes. Those are sort of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. It ended with them plotting against Jesus, trying to lay a snare for him that they might entrap him and therefore discredit him. 
They are upset because Jesus has, for all intents and purposes, absolutely unloaded on them in terms of their legalistic self-righteousness and hypocrisy. They were adding regulations to the law, insisting on these regulations while denying some of the most fundamental aspects of the law, justice and loving God. One author said they wrote the test, they graded their own test, and then patted themselves on the back for passing the test. And so Jesus delivers this devastating rebuke, including those six woes that we mentioned, these curses that are coming if this pattern of behavior continues and there is no repentance. And so instead of hearing the warning and repenting and turning and hearing the woes, they seek then to undermine Jesus. And chapter 12 opens with, it's not working. At least not yet. The crowds are growing to the point in chapter 12, verse 1, where where people are stepping over one another. You know, the ESV says trampling one another. I don't know that it's like Black Friday at Walmart trampling, but the the idea of the crowd is immense. They're stepping on top of each other to get to Jesus. And as this crowd is, is growing and the fame of Jesus is Growing and people are literally stepping over one another to hear Jesus. He does something interesting. He doesn't soak in the moment. You know, he doesn't turn and take a selfie of the crowd. He begins to turn and instruct his disciples. And his instruction to them begins with this command, beware, beware. The leaven of the Pharisees, which is, hypocrisy. This is not a a command that can be heeded just once. This is a command that needs to be continually taken on, continually put into practice. The disciples of Christ and us this morning, we need to have constant vigilance that we are on guard against the corrupting influence of legalism and self-righteousness that leads to hypocritical living. That's the idea behind this word, leaven. You know, there's some debate, actually, as you read, you know, whether this is a reference to what we call yeast or whether it's like spoiled dough that can actually infect and ruin a whole batch of dough. Either way, the point, it remains the same. Be leery of the subtle influence of the Pharisees. When you put yeast in some dough, you, you, you tend to see the, the end results better than you can just sit there and watch it and say, oh, I think I... I think I see evidence of the yeast there. So it's a subtle influence that that permeates the whole loaf of bread. And so this morning, we, we need to be willing to search our own hearts. Maybe this morning God would use His Word to demonstrate the ways in which our, our professed love for Christ is not actually demonstrated in our private life. Maybe we're out of balance like the Pharisees and the scribes, where we insist on strict adherence to to extra-biblical regulations while ignoring other parts of Scripture. Maybe we we rest in God's grace for our own justification, but we refuse to treat others with grace and mercy and kindness the way that we've been treated. Maybe we acknowledge Christ publicly, but we're lazy at work and undermine our testimony through the way that we work with others. You see, we might assume that, that the, 
the hypocrisy of the Pharisees would be, would be sort of obvious and, and in your face. But one of the reasons Jesus commands his disciples to beware is the very fact that it can be so subtle, and it can be subtle in our own hearts. We might think of it like a virus, like a, a common day, a, a current day metaphor for us might be virus. It's in, in, impossible to see a virus sort of floating around and infecting others around you. So we must be leery of this legalistic self-righteousness, the leaven of the Pharisees. We said last week it's, it's possible for us to walk in hypocrisy, to walk inconsistent with who we are in Christ, or to walk inconsistent with what we know to be true in Christ, or to be inconsistent with what we profess to believe about Christ. Charles Spurgeon was preaching on hypocrites and said, Do you know some of them? If you know yourself, you might discover one. Well, that's, that's unfortunately true. I do want to point out, though, that, that Jesus' tone is different that he, that he takes with his disciples than what he took with the Pharisees. He treats the hypocrisy of the Pharisees different than he treats the hypocrisy of the disciples. Jesus pronounces woes on the Pharisees if they would continue in their hypocrisy. Judgment is coming. With the disciples, he turns them, those who have committed themselves to following Christ, he turns and says, now be careful. You, you won't be characterized by hypocrisy the way the Pharisees are, because they honor me with words, but their hearts are far away. But for you, you have, who have committed your life to me, you need to beware, because it's possible for you to live inconsistent with who you are in Christ Jesus. Don't allow this, this hypocrisy that characterizes this group to sneak in and become evident in your own lives. So how is it that maybe the leaven of the Pharisees has snuck into our own hearts? Well, we can think about what the Pharisees were accused of. Or we, we might be answering the question, what is hypocrisy? Well, as Jesus interacted with the Pharisees, we saw it in the end of Luke chapter 11. We read about it in Matthew 23, which I think are actually two different instances of similar conversations. Jesus accuses the Pharisees of not practicing what they preach. Right? It's funny how the Bible has even so shaped culture that people say that, not even realizing they're pulling from the words of Christ. They were acting only to be seen by others. They loved the acclaim and the applause of Men, we mentioned earlier that they sort of pick and choose what they want to obey. Jesus said in Matthew 23 that, that you strain a gnat out of your cup, but you swallow a camel. You're really concerned about the gnat, but you're not concerned about this camel that's in your drink. It's obviously uh, comical language, holding to really minute obedience in one area while totally ignoring another. Hypocrisy is compartmentalizing your public and your private life. We saw that last week with the Pharisees. And again in Matthew 23, we might say that hypocrisy is being more lenient with yourself than you are with others. When you cut someone off in traffic, you made a mistake. When someone cuts you off, they're the biggest fool on the planet. Maybe we find ourselves in some of those. Maybe as we walk through that list, we, we, we do see some of those things in ourselves, especially as we think about that last one, being more lenient on ourselves than others. 
It'd be tempting to look at the Pharisees and say, man, look at those guys. How could they be hypocrites? And that's where Jesus' warning becomes important for us today. Jesus doesn't join in in making fun of the Pharisees. He says, beware, beware, because that leaven might soak into your own life. So why should I avoid hypocrisy? Why should I strive to live an authentic life before God and others? Well, there's, there's lots of good reasons. There's lots of good answers to that question. But one of the answers is given to us in verses 2 and 3 there. Hypocrisy is subtle. It's like leaven working its way through a lump of dough, but it's ultimately futile. Look in verses 2 and 3. Why should I live an authentic life before God and others? Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. We mentioned in chapter 11 that, that this idea of a hypocrite is someone who was a stage actor, a play actor, someone who, who might even wear a mask on stage. They're playing a part. And Jesus is warning his disciples here that there are no masks at the judgments. There is no covering up your heart or even the things that you've whispered in the dark or in secrets. There's nothing that can hide the true intentions of your heart or the actions that you've done in secret. And same for me. You see, hypocrisy, it relies on this hiddenness and secrecy. But all of it's stripped away in God's sight. Our words that we thought no one else heard, our conversations that we thought were only even happening in our minds or with our most trusted friend, they will be clearly revealed on the day of judgment. Last week, Jesus blasted the Pharisees by saying that they clean the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup is dirty. They they hope to sort of clean up the outside and not worry so much about their private life. As long as their public persona was right, then they were fine. But Jesus here reminds his disciples that all is laid bare in the sight of our all-knowing and sovereign God. You know, we tend to want to put our best foot forward. You know, the baker puts his best pies in, in the window, and we put, our, we put our best foot forward publicly. But God is not fooled. God will not be fooled by our public exterior. He cannot and will not be mocked. He cannot and will not be deceived. We might be able to fool those around us, but we cannot fool God. I'm reminded of some of the work we did in Malachi that described Christ as a swift witness in the day of judgment. And that was not just that judgment is coming quick, it's that he acts swiftly because he is skilled at what he does. The way somebody who can lay tile very skillfully can do it quickly. Jesus is a swift judge. He has an expertise in being a witness He knows the innermost thoughts of every person. He knows the works done in secret. He is the all-knowing and all-present and infallible witness against us in our wickedness. Our masks are no more effective in the judgment than Adam and Eve's attempt to cover themselves with little fig leaves. So in the passage before us this morning, Jesus is warning us, don't just live as if life is lived primarily before men. 
Because our, li- our lives are lived primarily before God. The Lord measures the status of the hearts. And so one of the, the means of avoiding hypocrisy is right thinking about God. That He sees and knows all. He sees and judges and exposes all wickedness. The following paragraph, verses 4-7, through seven, then sort of reveal part of the root cause of this hypocrisy. And once again, I think points us to the fear of the Lord. I think it's implied there, living in light of the judgment. You should, we should fear God, and we'll define that in a moment. Give some hope here in a moment. But we become hypocrites when we fear men more than God. Look in verse 4 there. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. We, we should not fear others, Jesus says, because they have a limited authority. One of, one of, the, one of the things that fuels hypocrisy is a fear of what man can do or say about us. Jesus has already pointed this out in the Pharisees as they desire to be be known and recognized and to receive acclaim in the sight of men. So Jesus wants to to give his disciples the true motivation for living an authentic, hypocritical, free life. If we live only for others, we're controlled by them. We fear them. We want their approval. We want the protection that they can provide. And our life becomes dominated by doing nothing more than considering what other people think and how I should respond to them. And the result is a hypocritical life. And Jesus says, why do you fear them? All they can do is kill you. After you are dead, they have no more power over you. And so Jesus goes to to what most would say is the ultimate power over a person. What's the most power you could have over a person? Well, it's to take their very life. The power to cause death, then, is the most extreme example of what we might fear. But there are other examples, aren't there, as well. We might fear something less than death. We might fear mockery or or imprisonment or persecution or being ostracized, being made fun of. When I was a new Christian, somebody gave me a book that sort of detailed the last week of Jesus' life. And, and he was talking about, you know, Peter's overconfidence and saying, you know, I don't care what it costs me, Jesus. I will never deny you. And then, of course, Jesus, or Peter denies Jesus shortly thereafter. And the author wrote something to this effect. I'm not quoting word for word, but he says, you know, we can boast in our willingness to die for Christ, but the reality is we deny him every day when something less than our life is on the line. In fact, J.C. Ryle said this, Thousands would never hesitate a moment to storm a beach or face a lion who dare not face the laughter of relatives, neighbors, or friends. Some would rather go to war than be ostracized by those people that they fear. This is a controlling influence that others can have on us. It's an unwillingness to face rejection, compromising in order to avoid the scorn or laughter of friends and family. And this is what the Bible calls the fear of man. 
whether death is on the line or whether it is popularity, fearing others tends to lead to hypocritical living. And Jesus says, fear of man, whether it's physical or whether it's social, fear, fear of man is not driven out by sheer willpower. It's not driven down by, driven out by me buckling down and becoming a stronger person. It's driven out by being swallowed up in a greater fear, the fear of the Lord. Don't fear man. Their authority is limited. Fear God because his authority extends into eternity. And if we don't have a worldview that, that goes beyond this life, the words of Jesus make no sense. Again, we, we want to think that the, the, the authority to cause death seems like the ultimate authority. But God is bigger than this life. He not only has power over life and death in this life, but he has power over, over eternal life and eternal death in the next. Jesus says he has the authority to cast into Hell. Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15 sort of explain this, this demonstration of this authority. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. All of our works exposed before Christ, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Physical death is only temporary. The reality described in Revelation chapter 20 is forever. So don't fear those who can only cause harm to the body. Instead, fear the one who resides as judge over all men, including you and me. Do not fear man. Fear God. And then amazingly, without, without skipping a, a beat, Jesus says in, in verse 7, fear not. Fear not. Why? Because God does not forget His own. Look there in verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Fear not, because, because God does not forget His own. Luke has done this a couple times. He gives an argument from the lesser to the, to the greater, right? Last time I talked about the Rockies beating the Twins, and they haven't won a game since. So I'm not going there this morning. But he, he employs his argument from the lesser to the greater. Sparrows were considered the cheapest of the cheap meat for the poor. If a poor, poor person was going to get some meat, it was probably going to have to be a, spar a sparrow. They were some of the least expensive food available in Israel. You could buy five of them for a couple pennies. A couple pennies there. It's like, it's like, it would be like an hour of work, minimum wage. For one hour of work, you can buy these five birds. And so the argument from the lesser to the greater is if God sees the sparrow and he's concerned about the sparrow, then you should not fear because you are more valuable than a sparrow. 
You know, if God knows and remembers and cares about the gerbil at PetSmart, then he knows and he cares about you. And he is exercising his unlimited authority to strengthen and sustain you. Fear not. Fear not. The sovereign and all-knowing God, Luke says, even knows the number of hairs on your head. Now, whatever. Just get it out. Some of us love God enough to make that easy on him. No, the idea is he is intimately acquainted with you. He knows you because he knows the sparrow. So he knows you and he knows the number of hairs on your head. So how do we reconcile these two things? How do we reconcile fear God and fear not? Well, we need to remember that Jesus' audience here is his disciples. They won't face the terrifying wrath of God forever in hell because they stand in right relation to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can only reconcile fear God who can cast into hell and fear not through Jesus Christ. Consider for a minute, even as we talk about hypocrisy, the perfection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He never spoke a hypocritical word. He never shaded the truth to sort of shield himself from harm or to make himself look better in front of others. His heart was always as perfectly pure as his actions He always obeyed God for all the right reasons. He never sought the applause of the crowd. He was completely and utterly free from this hypocrisy that we see runs so deeply even in us. So when he went to that cross, he went as the only perfect possible sacrifice for sin. He endured the wrath for hypocrites like you and me. You know, when somebody says, oh, the church is full of hypocrites, we say, yeah, and there's room for one more. For you this morning, if you come to him in humility and admit your own weakness and inability and sin and unwillingness to obey him and his law, and that Christ is the only way for you to escape this judgment that Jesus has been talking about this morning, he will receive you. He will remove your sin from you, the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west. He removes the threat of hell so that we are left with the sight of God's authority and His grace and His limitless love for us. See, the proper fear of the Lord, the way we should fear God is to be in total and complete awe of who He is in light of His power, in light of His authority, and in light of His mercy and grace. Kindness. Proper fear of the Lord takes into account both His holiness, His incredible power, and His unceasing love for His people. When we truly see God for who He is, our heart, true fear of the Lord, moves towards God, not away from Him. We find ourselves not terrified in in one sense, but we are rejoicing in Him. Psalm 2.11 says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We fear the Lord and we tremble at His presence, but we're not trembling in the fear of hell. We are trembling at His awesome and great power 
And we are resting in this firm confidence that if he cares for the sparrows, he cares for me. If he, he loves his people and he's demonstrated it through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, we can live an honest life before God and others because God is a God who loves his own. He exercises both incredible authority and minuscule care for his people. He has authority that no one that we might fear possesses. You might fear your boss. You might fear someone in the community. You might fear friends at school or friends in the co-op. But God possesses an authority and a minuscule care for you that they can never replicate. I wonder what, what would change for you and what would change for me if I, could, if I could truly look at the people that I want their respect desperately and I could look at them and say, oh, all you can do is kill me. I serve one who's greater than that. Or all you can do is throw me into prison. Or all you can do is make fun of me. All you can do is mock me. But I serve a sovereign God who personally cares for me. And I know it because he cares for the sparrow that's sold at the market. You can't do anything to me apart from God's good plan for me. He is using that sort of authority to work his will in my life. I have no need to fear how would our lives change if we could adopt this eternal mindset and live in light of the judgments and live in light of the authority of God and the, and the care and the concern and the love of God in Christ Jesus? When we tremble and rejoice before God, when we tremble and rejoice before Him, the strongest people, the most fearsome voices, the most hurtful mockery, they're nothing, nothing in light of God. So we avoid hypocrisy by living in light of the judgment. We avoid hypocrisy by fearing God and resting in His love. And lastly, this morning, we avoid hypocrisy by relying on the Holy Spirit's strength and empowerment to acknowledge Christ. Look in verse 8. And I tell you, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. As Jesus looks at and instructs his disciples in light of the clamoring crowd that's growing, he knows that many of the ones that he is speaking to will indeed die at the hands of men. Many will give their lives in service to Christ. So the care then that God exercises over his children isn't a promise of prosperity or a lack of suffering or even a lack of persecution or martyrdom. It is that even in death, God is guarding and strengthening His people through the Spirit of God. And after death, after death, when these, these men who remain faithful to the Lord and women who remain faithful to the Lord, even in, even in the face of 
persecution and death. They are acknowledged by Christ before the presence of the angels, and they are welcomed into the presence of God. Notice, as we look at this last paragraph here, the the high view that Christ has, even of himself. Now, it would be wrong for us to have a high view of ourselves, but Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Notice, he says, you must acknowledge me. You must acknowledge me in this life. And if you do, I, the, the, the Son of Man, I will acknowledge you in the presence of the angels. You know, we've seen this title, the Son of Man, show up a few times in, in the book of Luke. We sort of alluded to, to Daniel 7 a couple times. I should stop here and read it because uh, some people try to say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. He, yes, he did. Listen to Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. If you acknowledge me, Jesus says, then in effect, the Son of Man, the one who's been given all this authority and dominion over the earth and everlasting dominion, will welcome you into this kingdom. To acknowledge Christ is to profess your allegiance to Him as you show the reality of that allegiance in the way that you live publicly and privately. Publicly through loving God and loving others. Right, I love in Jeff's sermon, he said, don't, don't ask questions about what doesn't ask. How can I, how, how, where can I look for evidence that I'm acknowledging Christ before men? Am I loving God and loving others? So this is not just saying, in the context of hypocrisy, it's not just saying, well, if you say the right words about Christ, then he'll say the right words about you. It goes beyond that. It, it, it's, an, it's an allying yourself with him. It's a prob- public proclamation that I, I'm with Christ, and therefore that will be backed up by my actions. Those who do so are assured that Christ will acknowledge them in the judgments. If to acknowledge Christ is to profess allegiance to Christ, then at the judgment, he acknowledges us. He professes his allegiance to his people. Not, not people that deserve it, but because God has chosen to be faithful to his people. The opposite is true as well there in verse 9. Those who deny Christ are denied at the judgment. This denial is a continual rejection of Christ. You know, this isn't saying, oh, you know, you know you should have witnessed to that lady at the supermarket and you didn't, so you denied Christ. And therefore, Christ is going to deny you at the judgments. That's, that's not what this is saying. Like Peter, there is a failure of nerve that is not the subject of this warning. Peter denied his denial. And was restored by Christ. There's a there's historical examples of this as well. Not, not that Peter's not historical, but outside of the scriptures, Thomas Cranmer, Cranmer was pivotal in the English 
Reformation. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was putting English Bibles that people could read into churches. But, but if, you, if you know European history, the, the power would swing back between Protestant kings and queens and Roman Catholic kings and queens, and they would oftentimes punish each other. So Queen Mary rises to power. She's known as Bloody Mary for a reason. She was putting Protestants to death, and Cranmer was on her list. He was not just a Protestant after all. He was an archbishop. So the government, along with Mary, sought to uh, kind of make, an, make an example out of him. If we can get him to recount his, uh, his belief that the Pope does not have all authority and that, that the sacraments are salvific, if we can just sort of get him to recant, then it'll be an example to the people that they should follow him and recant. So through a, a number of different means of coercion, he signed a document re- refuting his Protestant theology and, in effect, acknowledging the authority of the Pope and the salvific nature of the sacraments. But the sentence remained. He still had to go to the stake and be burned. It seemed as if Mary had completely won. She got him to recant. He's going to say it publicly, and we get to put him to death. And he would say this publicly before he's burned at the stake. But when the day came and he renounced his, he, he renounced his renunciation, he denied his denial like Peter. He didn't say, you know what? I was wrong to believe that salvation is in Christ alone, by faith alone. He denied the authority of the Pope and the saving benefit of communion. And as they bound him to the stake, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put my right arm into the fire first because this is the one that signed the refutation of Christ. And I am sorrowful for what I've done. It was a clear picture that he regretted his weakness and regretted his lack of nerve. And so as we think even about what is this denial of Christ or, or in verse 10, what is it to blaspheme the Spirit? Look there in verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. As we think about verse 10, we might say that Peter and Thomas Cramner were guilty of speaking a word against the Son of Man. They were guilty of denying Christ but they were not guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They were forgiven of their sin and will be acknowledged on the day of judgment. So what does it mean then to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? And why will it never be forgiven? Well, in other Gospels, you know, this saying is placed alongside the charge we looked at several Weeks ago, when the, when the religious leaders accused Jesus of acting underneath the power and authority of Satan, so many have argued, even people that I like, even myself in the past, that blaspheming the Spirit is specific to the context of the incarnation and the public ministry of Jesus. The, the, the unforgivable sin is so specific that only those who were there when Jesus was healing people and only those who said, well, you know what, that's Satan's work, um, only those can be guilty of this unforgivable sin. 
So in other words, it wouldn't be a sin that we could commit today because it consists of personally seeing the work of Jesus and denying that work and attributing it to Satan. The problem with that is that, and again, I love and respect people that take this, and I want to approach hard passages with a lot of humility, but, but that doesn't seem to take into consideration the context of Luke and the way he is using this. Luke's gospel doesn't place it in that context. This is in the context of the Pharisees' hypocrisy and the impending judgment. And it's tied to the refusal to profess an allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and instead an insistence on walking and denying the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if this denial, if, if we're right that Peter didn't go to hell because he denied Christ once, or Thomas Cramner, I, uh, I'll, I don't even, I don't know if it's NM or MN, I'm just using both, so just go with it. But he repented of his denial. So, so if this denial is, is true, that it's an ongoing rejection of the Lord, not just a one-time lapse in courage or a one-time lapse in nerve, then we might say the, the unpardonable sin or, or this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is an unrepentant resistance to the revelation of Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's an unrepentant resistance to the revelation of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Thomas Schreiner says it this way, Thus those who commit such a sin have no love or regard for Jesus. Luke writes not about people who wish they could be forgiven by the Lord, but about those who have turned away from Him and denied Him and do not repent of their denial. So if this is, if this is something you've, that has kept you up at night, and it is something that you've wrestled with. Have I committed the unpardonable sin? Uh, our hope, your hope this morning, is not in that it might be impossible to commit this sin. Your hope is, is in the fact that grace is available to all those who see their sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Your hope is in the grace and the kindness of God to those who repent. Not in saying, oh good, I can sleep at night because it's actually impossible for me to do this. If we walk in persistent rejection of the Holy Spirit and we walk in denial of the Lord Jesus Christ, then yes, we will not receive the forgiveness of sins. But our hope is in God's grace. Turn to Him. Run to Him. Find grace and mercy in Him. So instead, then in verses 11 and 12, instead of trusting in themselves, Jesus encourages his disciples to rely on the Holy Spirit for strength to hold fast to Christ, even when they are pulled before rulers and authorities, which again, many of them will be. Verse 11, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus is not naive. This crushing popularity of the crowds will not continue. They will turn on him and cry out, crucify him, cruci crucify him. And Jesus has warned and will continue to warn the disciples that if they hated me, they will hate you. 
The end of the Gospels record the the turning against Christ. The book of Acts records the persecution that the disciples would face. We see Peter before the Jewish legal council in Acts chapter 4 and in Acts chapter 5. We see Stephen being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. We see Paul before the, the, the Roman authorities in Acts chapter 22. And in each case, we see how the Holy Spirit gave them, what we might say, gave them utterance, gave them the words to speak. Now, we don't have time to go and look at each of these, but if you want to read through the book of Acts, and again, chapter 4, 5, 7, 22. What is interesting is that these words are, are, are not the words that you might expect a lawyer to give on def- defense of the defendant's. This isn't truly coming to their own defense and trying to escape imprisonment or escape the death penalty. You know what the Spirit inspired in these moments when they were dragged before rulers and authorities? He inspired sermons. He inspired the gospel to go forth from the mouth of Stephen and from the mouth of Peter and from the mouth of Paul. The words that the Spirit gave to the disciples were not designed necessarily to get them off the hook because many of them didn't get off the hook. At times they did, and at other times they didn't. These words were designed to convict the hearers of the truth of the gospel. Listen to what Paul says about himself in 2 Timothy 4, 16-18. He says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. There was one who stood with them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Lord though he allowed Paul to be put to death that eventually, protected him, bringing him safely into the heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever, Paul says. Brothers and sisters, as we sort of sense, at least I seem to sense the hostility on the rise, our job is not to become hostile in return. It is to re- rely on the Holy Spirit that he might strengthen us to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us, to proclaim the message of the gospel, to entrust ourselves to God who judges rightly. We don't have to fear man because all they can do is kill us. We don't have to fear them. We don't have to deny Christ. We don't have to publicly do one thing and privately do another Why? Because God is the one who is protecting us and ordering our lives. You know, it's interesting as I think about this idea of hypocrisy and Jesus now applies it to persecution and maybe being killed. In chapter 11, he's applying it to the Pharisees who were outwardly religious. And so it's interesting as we think about this that this hypocrisy can go both ways. Either I can be hypocritical about being afraid to speak about Christ because it might cost me, 
Or I can be hypocritical in the sense that I want others to think I really love Christ, even though my actions don't back that up. And what Jesus has been saying from the beginning, we don't get to compartmentalize where we honor Christ and where we don't. It's public and it's private. Whether it costs you in church or whether it costs you in the public square, we can refuse both of those dichotomies. And we can live authentic lives, faithful lives, because we serve the one who is greater than any man. We don't have to fear others' perceptions or their ability to harm us. We can put off those because we live before the God who sees it all. You know, one of the reasons we act hypocritically is that we are, we are fearful of being fully known. We are fearful of being exposed before others. Right? I joke that there's things you do in front of your family that you would die if you did publicly. And we don't need to make a list. But we all, we're, we're accustomed to sort of hiding who we are around those we, we really trust and, and being someone else around others. And I'm not talking about, I'm not saying you should go out and be gross in public or whatever. But I'm saying this. To be in Christ, to serve the one who sees all and will lay all bare at the judgment, is to be fully known. He knows everything about you, yet He fully loves you. We hide from others because we're convinced if you really knew me, you would reject me. Yet here we have the Lord of the universe who knows you. He knows every bit about you. He knows the numbers on your head. Yet He loves you with an unrelenting love. And as we talk about, we'll end with this, as we talk about all this hypocrisy, duplicity, woes from the end of chapter 11, blasphemy of the Spirit, right? This can be a frightful sermon, especially those with a really sensitive conscience. It can be confusing at times. As we sometimes doubt our commitment to the Lord and we question whether we are a Pharisee or whether we're a disciple who just maybe wrestles with the leaven of the Pharisees. Here's the good news. We don't always have to be able to discern, discern exactly where we are. We don't have to know our own heart perfectly well. Our hearts are deceitful. But what we do in either case, the hypocrite and the one who has been leavened by the leaven of the Pharisees, turn from your sin and throw yourself at the mercy of God. He knows you, and He knows how to deal with you. And he is gentle to those who come to Him and say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. I'm relying on the finished work of Jesus Christ, and He will deal gently with you. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are overwhelmed as we expose ourselves to Your Word and see our weakness, our sin. Sometimes we feel like David, our sin is ever before us. Yet we pray, Lord, that we would rest in your kind love and care for us. You have demonstrated your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. May that be our hope. And in light of that, that Jesus Christ has dealt with our sins, may we live authentic lives free from hypocrisy, free from the fear of man. May this afternoon and this week we live every moment in light of 
who you are, who Christ is, who the Spirit is, and what you've done to accomplish our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.